Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the debate over letter grades on kids' report cards. A new school year is looming here, and when kids get back to class this fall... It will be the new province-wide report card system. Kindergarten through grade 9. No more ABCs. And no more Ds and Fs either on student report cards. Those letter grades being dropped and replaced by written descriptors instead. Emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. That's replacing A, B, C, and D. Why is the province doing this? Well, among the reasons cited, to reduce student stress and anxiety. Got Ann Stocky standing by to discuss, University of Winnipeg. Have a listen to this here first. This is Victor Brar. He's an, an education professor at UBC, and he supports dropping these letter grades. Have a listen. It's definitely time for change. Uh, letter grades are were a vestige of, of an industrial society. It's a strength-based perspective where everyone is on the spectrum. Um, they're at different points on the spectrum, but nonetheless, they're on the spectrum. Okay, Victor Brar, UBC, uh, so he supports dropping these letter grades. Let's discuss now with my guest, Anna Stocky. Anna is a mathematics professor at the University of Winnipeg, and I absolutely recommend her podcast on education shock and talk search that on on google you'll find it very easily anna thank you for coming on today oh thank you so much for having me yeah you bet and congratulations on your podcast which which i enjoy if you're into education issues you should definitely check out anna's podcast here okay so let's let's talk about this anna so dropping dropping letter grades from report cards is this a trend we're seeing in a lot of different jurisdictions well i've certainly heard people um rail against exams and I would imagine this is in the same category. So I do think there are some educators that would like to see exams removed and that probably goes along with the whole letter grade, removal of letter grades from report cards. Oh, for sure, because we have, uh, you know, we have standardized testing system here in British Columbia as well. The foundation skills assessment test it measures kids' achievement in reading, writing, mathematics, which I know is your specialty, math. And a lot of people don't like that either. And they will cite the same reasons about, you know, anxiety, test anxiety. Sure. Let's have a listen to Nathan Ricky here. He is a university at Queen's University, uh, speaking earlier to our own Simi Sarah. Then I'll get your thoughts here. Let's listen. We rely too much on tests and assessments. We're really focusing on certain skills like memorization, um, students who have severe test anxiety are likely to not perform as well on tests, but that doesn't necessarily represent their learning accurately. Okay, a couple of points there. Let's talk about the anxiety first. Is this a real thing? Like, are are there some kids who are just absolutely terrified of report cards, tests, they got anxiety, depression? Your thoughts? Okay, so um, first of all, there's stress and there's anxiety. And so experiencing stress when you're going into a stressful situation is pretty normal. And I think in most situations, that's what we're actually dealing with is stress, not severe anxiety. So the first thing is stress isn't always bad. So studies have shown that stress is actually helpful when students are trying to learn information. So if, a, if your student is, is worried about an upcoming test and they're stressed out about it, I would say don't worry about it. It, it helps them to focus and concentrate on what they need to do. Now, the next thing is that when the student writes the exam, yes, it is normal to feel stressed about the exam. Now, that doesn't mean that we should remove the exam. That's a a ridiculous thing to do just because people are stressed about exams. Instead, what we need to do is prepare students for exams. So that that involves things like lots of practice in math, for instance. So lots of Mm. practice so that you're ready for the test. Um, doing things like mock tests, you know, having low stakes assignments and things like that. 
Of course, if students go into a test and they're not prepared for the test, that's going to be extremely stressful and the test won't go well. But in most yeah. situations, when students do poorly on a test, it's because they're not prepared. So I would say that we need to think about actually preparing students for stressful situations because there will be lots of stressful situations in their life, not just tests. And instead of removing those stressful situations, we should prepare students for them. Mm -hmm. I think those are some great points. The other thing that we heard Nathan Rickey touch on there in that clip we played is this concern around memorization or, or like rote learning where kids might concentrate on memorizing material they think or expect will be on a test. They're worried about their test scores. They're worried about their report card grade. Is there anything to that? I mean, you're a mathematics prof, so sure. you know, there's a lot yeah. of memorization goes into math. I remember when I was in, in school, we tried to memorize a lot of the math stuff. Your thoughts? Yeah. So first of all, let's not disparage memorization. Some memorization is very important. So for instance, it's very important that children have their times tables memorized. If they don't have their times tables memorized, it's going to be very difficult for them to solve more complex problems. So some memorization is, of course, very important. And there are other things that that we we need to know how to do. Like when we see a problem, we need to recognize what type of problem that is and pull from our memory, you know, what what technique should I use to to solve that problem? Is it is it shallow learning to to you know be able to do that sort of thing? Absolutely not, because that's how you become good at solving problems. Now this business about tests and grades, you know, um, promoting shallow learning. I mean, uh, this this just doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like tests, tests measure learning. They tell you what students have learned, right? Grades give students and parents feedback. They tell you what the student actually needs to improve on, where they're at, that sort of thing. And they give students goals. Tests give students goals and they give teachers goals so that everybody's on track to learn the things that they're supposed to learn in the classroom. So I really don't think there's uh, there's anything to that argument. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm speaking to Anna Stocky, mathematics professor, University of Winnipeg. Her podcast is called Chalk and Talk. Okay, let's listen to another clip here. Nathan Rickey, Queens University, has got a different perspective on this. And he says this, uh, this what he calls an obsession. He thinks there's an obsession about grades on report cards and that this is a bad thing and it's a good idea to drop these letter grades. Let's have a listen to what he has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. That fuels this sort of grading obsession, which we know is harmful for students' well-being and learning. If you're focused on, you know, doing well on assessments and doing well on tests, more than learning, you might be driven to what we call shallow learning approaches, like memorizing information and uh, learning, you know, sort of test strategies that are helpful on tests but not really helpful in the real world. Okay, so he he touched on the whole shallow learning concept there that you mentioned, and he calls grading, there's an obsession with grading. Is that your experience? Are we obsessed with these grades on report cards? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, certainly students do worry about grades. They they want to do well. Um, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. I mean, isn't that the whole point of learning is that we actually want to learn information and and try to excel? Um, so, you know, I think I think that's a pretty negative view. And and this business about grades harming students' well-being, what is he talking about? I mean, that's, <laughs> this just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that are being said here that that don't um, that, that just don't ring true to me. And yeah. uh, you know, I think I think it's very important that that we give students feedback. That's one of the most important things to help students to learn, yeah. and that's what tests do. What exactly does he have on offer? What's his alternative for us here? Because, you know, we have to measure learning somehow, right? right. I mean, you know, like, do you think that you're going to go to and, and ask to get a, a driver's license and someone's just going to give it to you without actually testing to see if you can drive? Of course yeah. not, right? It's the same with something like mathematics. We need to make sure that you actually know the mathematics that you're supposed to learn at that grade level to in order to move on right so it's it's the same idea i guess the thing that he's suggesting should replace it is what we're doing here in british columbia dropping these letter grades and substituting in these written descriptors emerging developing proficient and extending 
And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering, like, as a parent, I've got a, I'm a parent with kids in the public school system. You know, I kind of like just the clarity of the letter grades because I get a good, quick, clear snapshot how my kid's doing instead of trying to figure out this word salad here. What are your thoughts? Of course. And yeah. I mean, okay, so there's a few things about, about these words. So, I mean, what does extending mean? Don't, don't we actually mean um, excelling? Isn't this the new A plus, right? Yes. I mean, these are just words, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the difference here? And the other thing, I, I also would be very upset if I were a parent. I would like to have clarity. And I think this is likely going to cause a lot of problems. Parents are going to be bothering the teachers. Like, what does this even mean? Mm-hmm. Right? So, and and the other thing you do have to worry about is teacher bias, right? So, mm. you know, and we've all had great great teachers who love us and then you know we sometimes have teachers that it just doesn't seem to work and when we're talking about these anecdotal measures you don't you don't always know that what you're what you're going to get is is really that accurate because even i have that that has happened with me i've sometimes thought that a student wasn't actually doing that well and then the test will actually reveal that they know what they're doing Mm. right so a test is a much better measure than anecdotal measures like what we're talking about here. Okay. Okay. It's been great to talk to you and get your perspective on it today. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Let's go right to your phone calls and speak to Emily in Abbotsford. Hi, Emily. Go ahead. There. So I am a parent of a kid going into grade five and a kid going into grade two. And then I also volunteer with high school students uh, during the summer. And one of the things that I'm seeing is that this new type of learning for elementary school students is is helpful as parents because we can really be deliberate with how we're helping them. But once kids get into high school, one of the things we're seeing is that kids don't actually have a skill set or a toolkit to navigate tests and studying and the stress that we're seeing. And when we don't put these um, markers in place, we really aren't setting kids up for success because when we when they get into the real world, they're going to have projects. They're going to have meetings with their bosses that are going to be stressful. And we're not giving kids these tools to navigate those problems they're going to have in life if we don't actually start them at a younger age where they can be in a healthy place to navigate those challenges. Yeah, thank you, Emily, for, for making those points. And it includes the, the higher grades in high school, too, right, because... You know, the system we have now is there's still, there's going to continue to have letter grades and some of these letter later grades, but they may drop it there too. And at that point, you're getting ready for post-secondary college or university in many cases. And man, if you don't have a background in getting those letter grades earlier, uh, I think it, we, I think it could be a disservice to our kids. Thank you for the call. Andrew in Kamloops. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, my kids are starting grade nine and grade six this year. So my older one was in high school last year. Uh, and both my kids have never had letter grades up in Kamloops. They don't do letter grades until the start of grade 10. And uh, you know what? Like the, the sky has not fallen. My child, my kids are both brilliant. They, they're, they're understanding. The reason why they tell me is that, you know, back in the day when we were in school, we never had an app that we had on our phone that could hover over our exam or spreadsheet or stuff like that and tell us all the answers <laughs> so, <laughs> there's so yeah. much technology now it's all about does your child comprehend what they're being taught and they yeah. do unit quizzes all the time they get percentage scores they know they got 75 percent or 80 percent you know there, there are communications yeah but what there isn't they're just not a letter grade because it really doesn't matter you know Thank it's you. not can you regurgitate it's do you comprehend Thank you, Andrew, for that call. I got both sides of it here on the open line. Appreciate it. Steve in the West End. Hey, Steve, go ahead. Hey, Mike. I think ultimately we live in a competitive society, and uh, the pressure on these kids are not only from within or, say, even within the school down onto the kid, but I think something missed is the maybe a cultural pressure at home. Okay. I think that's also where kids are, are being pushed. Um, it's not homogenous. And I think ultimately this, this new way of presenting assessment is just, just spaghetti. It's just pasta cut up differently. They'll, they'll still categorize it instead of exceptional. They'll call it EX instead of A or developing. Maybe that's a C, C minus to, to us. It, it's just going to be understood 
differently and and probably different acronyms will be given but ultimately i wanted to suggest hey this is the stress is not a homogenous thing it's <clears throat> it comes from different levels and different cultures will lean on their kids differently Let's dig into this grizzly bear hunting issue now. Grizzly bear hunting had been banned in B.C. for many years. Back in the headlines this week, the B.C. government considering a new hunting framework, possibly restoring the grizzly bear hunt in some areas of the province, especially after at least one B.C. First Nation in northwest B.C. said the commercial hunt for grizzly bears was actually a big revenue generator for that First Nation in the past before the ban came in. Got Bill Bennett standing by to discuss. First, let's go back in time here. Let's listen to this Global News report, 2017. Uh, This was the announcement of the ban. Have a listen. Grizzlies are now off limits to hunters in this province. Protecting this iconic species is simply the right thing to do. The provincial government announcing an immediate and total ban for everyone except First Nations who can continue to hunt grizzlies for food, social, ceremonial or treaty rights. This announcement on grizzly bears is fantastic. It's fantastic news. Okay, well not everyone thought it was fantastic. Some want to see the hunt brought back to BC. Let's discuss now with my guest Bill Bennett, former MLA in the BC legislature. He was an MLA for many, many years representing East Kootenays there. He's also a former hunting lodge owner and very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bill, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for dragging me out of retirement. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice to talk to you again. And uh, so let's go back when when you were in government and you held many different cabinet posts, um, energy minister among them and others. Did this issue, do you ever recall this issue ever coming up, uh, you know, from people? There has always been longtime opposition to grizzly bear hunting. Did it, was that on, did that come up when you were in in government? Yeah, of course. It it was uh, a topic of conversation both formally in cabinet and, and committee settings. Um, and also, you know, socially, just between um, MLAs, our, our party um, is a, you know, is a coalition. The BC United Party is a coalition. There's people from downtown Vancouver who, who run to be MLAs and serve, and then there's people like me that are kind of hillbillies from, uh, you know, from the Kootenays or from the north or from the from the Caribou. So we have different points of view. And when you live close to the Grizzlies, uh, honestly, the the main factor that that we really care about is you know, when are there too many? And and that's really the issue that I think the BC government has to has to deal with. It, this is a very emotional topic. There's no question that grizzly bears are are beautiful animals. I just saw two on on the weekend when I was in the mountains. Uh, they're an iconic species. I agree with that. Uh, but if there are too many grizzly bears, uh, that that develops into a public safety issue, and it also has an impact. Um, on the prey species like the deer and the moose and the sheep and uh, and the elk. So it's a complicated issue, but I hope it can be sorted out on the basis of, of calm, rational uh, evaluation and, and the science and, and not just simply somebody standing up, you know, saying that they're a beautiful, iconic species and we must not hunt them. That's that's not that's not good management. Yeah. Did you support the grizzly hunt when it was was in place? Because there was a lot of pressure on your government to ban it, and you never did. It was the NDP that brought in the ban. Did you support the hunt when it was in place? Oh yeah, I, I, uh, you may recall, I've been on your show and and everybody else's show and interviewed by all kinds of journalists and so forth about this over the years. And and I, you know, you, it's easy to come across as just a you know dumb redneck from. Uh, from the countryside that it doesn't really appreciate these bears or, or that loves to, you know, to, to kill these bears. I've never shot a, a grizzly bear. I probably never will. That, that's not the point for me. The point is, is good management and making sure we don't create a public safety issue like the one we have today. We do have a public safety issue in many regions of the province. I, re- I recall that there was a campaign to ban grizzly bears when you were in government or banned grizzly bear hunting when you were in government and there were arguments at the time that hunting was a threat to their sustainability and to their survival was that ever your i mean when you talk to scientists and biologists on this file did you ever did anyone ever tell you hey these hunters are could wipe out these bears or do you think the bears 
the Bears' numbers were sustainable. That conversation, Mike, between elected people and, and, and hunters generally in the province, there's a few hundred thousand of them, um, went more like this. It was, you know, in certain regions of the province, you had plenty of bears. In fact, you had an excess of grizzly bears, and so you could sustain a hunt in those areas. There were other areas of the province where you didn't. For example, I don't think you have any in, in uh, Stanley Park. We've got a few we, we would send you. Um, but uh, I mean, seriously, I mean, there are regions in the province where the population is, is low enough where you should not have a hunt. But that's the basis upon which you should discuss this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if we, if we take a look at the scientific perspective on this, so let's have a listen to Clayton Lamb here on yesterday's show. He is a wildlife scientist, a wildlife researcher at UBC, and he agrees with you. He says, look, the numbers are, are sustainable uh, in BC and a, a hunt is possible. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday, and then I'll get your thoughts. You know, we have quite dense populations of grizzly bears across British Columbia, so there was somewhere on the order of 300 grizzly bears hunted when the hunt was open. It was about 2% of the population. And the science kind of says that we can uh, sustainably hunt up to about 5%. So, yeah, I mean, I think a small uh, limited hunt is sustainable uh, from a population perspective. Right. So you can carefully manage the hunt and, and hunting is carefully regulated and managed in British Columbia. So I don't know. It, it seems to me that a hunt is is possible to have a gain in British Columbia. But then we get back in, into the politics of this bill. So let's talk a little bit about that, because if you take a look at some of the opinion polling on this, um, and the NDP government at the time pointed to this, there was wide support for banning the hunting of this species. How much should that play into it, public opinion? Well, you, you gather that public opinion by asking certain questions. You know, you ask people if they really uh, like grizzly bears. Uh, most people don't live where I live, out in the, the country in the, in the Rockies. Uh, they're going to say, yeah, I'd, I'd love looking at grizzly bears on TV. And, and if I'm in a bear viewing uh, a perch or a cage or something where I'm, I'm safe, you know, I like looking at them uh, there. But that's not really the question that we should be asking people. We should be asking people, um, would you jeopardize public safety in rural communities uh, and in the rural area generally uh, just to have more grizzlies than the habitat can sustain. I bet you if you ask people that question, you'd get a different answer. Yes, and speaking to Bill Bennett, former BC cabinet minister, uh, you mentioned that there's a public safety issue. Where is there? Where in BC do you believe there's a public safety issue and a threat from grizzlies? A lot of places. Um, unfortunately, uh, I know when I was MLA, and that's, you know, I retired in 17, so it's a few years ago, but in, in Elkford, the parents had to, you know, sit with their kids in their vehicles in the morning uh, at the bus stop because there there were grizzly bears hanging around the streets of of Elkford, uh, which is a, a town in in my old riding here. I know the Taltan have had really serious problems in their communities, Telegraph Creek and Dees Lake. I know in the Caribou, all the small communities, even in communities the size of Quinell and Caribou Lake or uh, uh, Williams Lake, um, they they have grizzly bears uh, causing issues there. Here in the Kootenays, I mean, last week we had a, a sow grizzly and two cubs, beautiful animals. There's Nobody is questioning that. And nobody wants to see that sow or those cubs come to harm. But they're on the trails at uh, Elizabeth Lake, just on the edge of Cranbrook, where you've got mothers and children walking during the, you know, the, the summertime there. That's who spotted this, this sow and, and, and two cubs. And if that sow thinks that those cubs are threatened, she quite likely is going to go after uh, those folks that are walking here. That's a public safety issue. We've got too many bears. We normally would not have grizzly bears down in the bottom of the valley in the middle of the summer. It, it never used to happen, Mike. And I'll just give you one quick uh, interesting fact. Grizzly bears are very territorial, and the males kind of run the, run the show. And, and a big old boar uh, grizzly will chase out any other males that, uh, that are born. So a two-year-old grizzly that's turned loose by mom, uh, if it's a male, it either gets the, the heck out of there, uh, out of that territory, or, or else it's going to get killed by the, by the big old boar. And the only place to go is down the mountain. So they have, over the last 20 years, come down the mountain, and they're all over the place here in the bottom of the valley. If you talk to old ranchers uh, who lived here you know, for a long time, they'll tell you they, they were never down here in the summer. It's because we have too many.
Okay, that's very interesting perspective. Final question for you, Bill. I have talked to hunters in British Columbia, some who not necessarily grizzly bear hunters, uh, but who feel that this decision is a a threat to hunting rights generally in British Columbia. Uh, They fear a slippery slope scenario where if this particular species is banned for hunting, that other species, big game species in British Columbia could be banned next. I know you support hunters, hunters' rights. Do you, do you share that concern? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. If you make a decision that is not based on the available science that your government biologists uh, have at their fingertips, uh, you make a decision that's purely political, like this grizzly bear hunting ban, um, what's going to stop you from making all kinds of decisions about hunting or anything else involving wildlife that are, that are not based on the science? Bill, it's a pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, Mike. Take care. Okay, let's dig into this issue now of secure involuntary care for people who are obviously mentally ill on the streets of of the city. And we talked about this on recent shows. Just about everyone has seen this now. Not only on the streets of Vancouver and the downtown east side, but many other Vancouver neighborhoods other neighborhoods throughout Metro and beyond in British Columbia, people who are suffering, people who are sick, suffering from what appears to be untreated mental illness, brain injuries, drug addiction. And we've heard the calls for reopening a facility like like Riverview. Involuntary secure care for people who are mentally ill. We hear this from many political leaders here. Now, i got Megan Davies standing by to talk a little bit about the, the history of Riverview Hospital. Have a listen to the former premier here, John Horgan, saying that he thinks that they should not have shut Riverview down. Have a listen. Closure of, of Riverview uh, clearly was the wrong policy because it wasn't accompanied with massive investments in community services. We now have to find a way to... to uh, create a Riverview-style location that also has uh, uh, programs for people in communities because not everyone requires 24-hour care. Okay, that was the former Premier John Horgan. That was three years ago, and we continue to hear calls for something to be done about people who are suffering on the streets. Let's discuss now with my guest, Megan Davies, researcher at York University, and I'm very pleased to welcome Megan back to the show. Megan, thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. And you've done some uh, really incredible work here on the, on the history of Riverview Hospital in, in British Columbia. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, a lot of people, they've heard about Riverview. They know sort of where it's located, but maybe not a lot of people know about the precise history of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? When did it begin? Well, it was a late 19th, or in fact, Riverview was built um, right around the time of the First World War. But um, I'm actually, you know, it was really cool to hear um, Horrigan talk about it, former Premier, talk about about his notion of the history. <clears throat> and he said something that really resonated for me, because this was a huge facility at its peak population in 1950. And by the 1970s, it was emptying out and people were being treated in a fairly short order fashion as opposed to long-term incarceration, and they were sent out um, back to the community. But the problem was that the community wasn't ready. There weren't the facilities, as he noted. There, yeah. there was That was where it all fell apart. And um, I did created a documentary with a group of people who were mental health patients in the 1970s, who created their own organization to provide housing and community supports, and they worked with the then um, embryotic community mental health uh, organizations uh, created by the provincial government. But there just never was the money put into creating a really robust community mental health system. Yeah. Um, it, and, and BC wasn't particularly bad in this regard. Um, you know, right across Canada, those were really important uh, supports that just weren't there. So I would say 
where I would disagree with her again is is that we don't need a Riverview like institution. We need we need something more like Toronto's Gerstein Crisis Centre, which is is a vital organization there and works from the point of view not of medical professionals or even of us who, you know, walking down the street, yes, you see people and you think, oh, they're so in distress, but the Gerstein provides supports that are given from the perspective of what those people say that they need. And that, that's where I'm concerned right now about things because I see real issues about human rights yeah. um, potentially being violated and also that we don't necessarily give what is needed. You know what I mean? Um, sure. There clearly is a terrible need. Um, uh, clearly things got worse during the pandemic um, and for sure we see that need articulated in a kind of distress that is unbearable for even for us to watch, huh? Right. And, and, and when you mentioned that the experience in, in British Columbia and, and Vancouver with the shutdown or the winding down of Riverview from its peak yes. is certainly not unique in Canada. Like there was a movement across the country toward deinstitutionalization, right? Shutting down what used to be known as like mental asylums, right? Shutting these down, downsizing yes, them, yes. closing them. Yeah. Why Why did that happen? Like, were people being abused and mistreated at Riverview and other facilities like it? Well, it was, it's a comp, I could give you a half hour lecture, but I know we've only got a few minutes. Uh, yes. So in a nutshell, it was a combination of things. There were, we, we had um, pharmaceutical drugs to help, uh, so which seemed like a very promising treatment route. There were new notions of, Human rights emerging after the sec in the wake of the Second World War, um, and we we decided as a society that this was a good idea, and that it was the right thing to do to deinstitutionalize. Like instead of people being incarcerated for decades or a lifetime, um, often that people could come out into the community and have meaningful lives. But the reality was, as well, that the convenient reality for governments was that it was a huge saving to shut those. Those were expensive places, and the federal government was funding um, acute care hospitals, but it wasn't funding chronic care. So putting short-term psychiatric beds in places like the Vancouver General Hospital made economic sense. And right across Canada, instead of taking those savings and creating good, robust community health care, we just, I guess this government just spent that money somewhere else, probably yeah. on highways. Right. <laughs> in right. B.C., it was probably Wacky Bennett spending it on highways. Ugh. Yeah, so, so, you know, it, any policy shift is complicated. But deinstitutionalization was a radical shift in mental health care, and we're still feeling the reverberations of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on this sort of growing uh, opinion among, among political leaders that maybe involuntary care is something that needs to be expanded given what we see on the street. So we heard the, the comment there from former Premier John Horgan saying that closing Riverview was the wrong policy. Let's listen to... Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh, who was a guest on the show last week on this topic, and this really got a lot of listener reaction when he, he felt that the situation in his city is so severe with people who he believes are obviously suffering from mental illness and brain injury on the street, that we should reopen secure care, involuntary care for people. Let's have a listen to what he said, and then I'll get, get your thoughts. Here's Leonard Krogh. As I say over and over again, no one's asking for a return to, you know, one floor with a cuckoo's nest and nurse ratchet. Yeah. But smaller, secure facilities in communities so that people would have access to their families, to their loved ones, uh, should be the norm for care in our province. So, Megan, when he talks about smaller community-based facilities, people would have access to family members, is that, does that make sense to you, what he's saying there? I'm, I am very... Um, I, uh, I 
I'm very nervous about um, the capacity that the BC legislation has, uh, the mental health legislation has for involuntary mental health treatment. And I think that a better approach would be to look at needs. Um, what do people, what do those people need rather than say, okay, you're out of here, you're sick. It might be that their distress is triggered by, you know, mental health is really complicated. It's not just a mental, a medical condition. It's complicated by a whole host of other things like housing, like social isolation, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're putting them in a Riverview-like institution, you're just going to be treating the medical condition. And I, I just am nervous about the potential violations of, of human rights that would accompany what the mayor of Nanaimo is saying. I mean, I appreciate, you know, um, towns and cities are different places than they were in 1970. And um, any public public libraries, downtown public libraries, have become social welfare institutions, right? They're doing yeah. community mental health care. But maybe, maybe we just kind of need to rethink how those places are going to be. Uh, last question you know, for you. Um, but, last sorry, question for ahead. you, Megan. Yeah, last question for you, Megan. Do you, do you yeah. think that, do you see evidence that, here in British Columbia, this is a, a conversation that's getting a lot of traction. Uh, we've heard that the current Premier, David Eby, also t- muse about this. The opposition leader is, t- is talking about expansion of, of, of secure and voluntary care for, for mental illness in our province. Is this happening across Canada? Like, are we hearing in other provinces also similar ideas being raised as we see this sort of untreated mental illness on the street? Well, um, certainly Alberta is talking about that. Yeah. I think in I think in you know I live in Toronto I teach at York I think that that there are more hopeful things happening there um and I I think we need to be very careful very careful about how we approach um approach this situation because there we we have to respect people's fundamental human rights and we have to include their right to advocacy we have to have public oversight over those situations where we take away people's um right to live as they want to that's that's a big thing to do to people yeah and they don't want to be in those situations and they clearly need help but how do we as a society um maintain an ethical stance on that and take responsibility for protecting human rights and thinking about social justice. Yeah, these are big these are big questions we're all struggling Huge with. Questions. Megan, thank you very much for your time and your perspective on it today. Okay. Take care. All right. As the voice of Rusty Johnson, a BC barbecue champion. And are you like me? I mean, it's Thursday, right? You're getting closer to that weekend. I start thinking weekend here. And we got a beautiful, warm, sunny weekend coming up here. Though we start thinking about the grill. I think this weekend would be a great time to do a little barbecuing for sure. I know they will be doing that at the, the Rib Fest in Langley, this weekend let's check in with rusty johnson now champion barbecuer and this guy is unbelievable bc provincial barbecue champ 2015 world burger champion you see him on global tv all the time rusty thanks for coming on thank you so much and speaking of hot mike uh i'm doing this interview from my uh reefer truck right now because it's so hot outside It is hot, man, and uh, it's going to be a hot time in Langley this weekend at the at the Rib Fest. You'll be there, right? Oh yeah, I'm here now. I'm setting up, uh, sweating away here, and uh, just trying to keep cool to make sure I can get through the interview here. And got the crew getting the barbecues all polished up. It's going to be a big weekend. Lots of good, uh, a lot of big name ribbers out here as well. So it's going to be exciting. 
Yeah, for sure. And this is a big one here. You got at McLeod Athletic Park in Langley, and they get a ton of people out here for this rib fest, right? I mean, man, oh man, forty thousand! Holy cow! Yeah, it's like oh, you should see the uh, yeah the amount of people here. And the best part about it is, is no one that has uh, a sour look on their face. It's all smiles out here, like twenty thousand <laughs> smiles. And there's beer. There's unlimited, amazing food. Like it's got everything you need. Yeah, for sure. And when you do these events, Rusty. I mean, you are a competitive barbecuer. I mean, you've won a ton of awards, trophies, titles. Is this a, is there a competition element to this this weekend too? Are you competing this weekend? Yeah, it's it's a couple things all at once. Like, obviously, first of all, it's a big family event where we're selling lots of barbecue. And let's just, when I say lots of barbecue, I intend on selling somewhere between twelve hundred to fifteen hundred racks of ribs this weekend. Um, but on top of that, on the Sunday, right when everybody's just at their wits end and been cooking all night for a couple nights, there is a competitive element to this. We got a lot of celebrity judges coming out here. Um, some people from the chorus family uh, coming out here to do nice. some uh, the judges from the radios. And so, yes, yeah, so there's a big competition for the seven uh, uh, teams here. And uh, feel I love it if people came by, watched all the intensity coming, and, and uh, watch all the awards at the end. It's pretty fun. Oh, yeah, for sure. The Langley Rib Fest this weekend. That is highly recommended. Okay, Rusty, let's talk a little grilling here with the weekend coming up and get some grilling tips going. And I was mentioning to you off the air here earlier this morning that, I mean, you are everywhere. I see you on global TV. I see you doing barbecues with the BC Lions. And this morning, my phone buzzed and I get this email from from Cobb's Bakery, there's a there's a Cobb's Bakery around the corner from my house. It's promoting the Rusty Burger, and I'm like, this, this guy is everywhere. The, and then I watch the video on your Rusty Burger. Let's talk a little bit about that because I know you love you love grilling a good burger. And I got to be honest with you, when I do a burger on the on the grill, I will get lazy. I will go to the store and I'll just buy the you know the pre-made patties in the meat department. Right? You you do you don't do it that way. No, and, and I always tell people it takes no more extra effort to make a really good burger, but the results are that much better. Uh, I mean, it's not even that much more. It's if even uh, less expensive to even make them yourself at home. Do you want me to lay out some of my yeah, secrets right now for you? Absolutely. I guess they won't really, there'll be only secrets between you, me, and all the listeners out there. If you guys can all just keep it amongst each other. Uh, the secret <laughs> to a good patty, too, is I think a little people get little too obsessed with what kind of grinds they're getting what kind of meats you can usually just go to the store and get fresh ground truck but that's the key there it's not so much the type of meat that you're getting now when i go to a competition maybe i'm a little more particular but that's a competition when you're on the world stage and i might get some ground short rib but if i'm cooking burgers for my family i'm just doing chuck at home i'm doing a nice 80 20 that means 20 percent fat that's about that's regular about a lean ground beef but there's things you can do to your patty that don't take very much time that you can make it super juicy and almost gets it to the point where you can't even overcook it. And that's the real key. Oh. Uh, I really like to add myself. I always add, if you see me on Global or anybody, I always add a little dab of mayo into my mixture. So for every pound of beef, put us about a tablespoon of mayonnaise and mix it into the grind. If you really want a juice bomb and really want to impress your friends, Try a little flavored butter in there too. Just get it cold so that you can shave it with a fork. And just a little bit of tidbits, a little sparkling of, of a little bit of butter in your burger. It can really bring up the juiciness, the saltiness on the inside too will help enhance the flavor. It'll just take it. That's what a world-class burger can be like when you want to do a competition. So um, that's what I always try to advise people to do. Really pay attention to good quality buns too. Try to stay away from the generic brands. Go to that bakery section. See what they have fresh there. Uh, yeah. Same with the meat I was saying earlier. Get a really fresh ground meat don't get it the day before try to get it that day you'll notice a huge difference okay so when you're talking about the ground chuck and all that like if you go to a grocery store and you just pick out you know regular ground beef or lean ground beef is that going to get it done Yes, lean ground beef is closer to that 15, 85, uh, 20, 80 kind of range that I like to go a regular ground beef Though good in certain things, in a burger doesn't work because of the fat content in the rendering. You're going mm. to actually, you end up having those little burgers that you think are going to be huge. And next thing you know, they're the size of a golf ball and they're a little disformed. That's because there's too much fat content in the meat. And that's why I add my own fat. Like you can add enough. And, and I hate to always say the fat part, but the fat is the flavor. The fat yeah. is the juiciness. So I add my fats in on its own and I make sure that uh, that I'm not getting too lean of a, I mean, uh, too uh, fatty of a cut. 
in order because that meat will render and you'll lose it all and you'll lose your shape. Okay, I love your tip there on, on put a little bit of mayo in there when you make up these patties and a little bit of flavored butter there as well. So you, you're not so you're not putting melted butter in there. You're putting some cold butter in there that you've sort of shaved cool. off in a little bit. Yes, and then what you can do is it makes it easier to blend in and mix in yeah. on its own. And then you've got these little these little bombs. What it'll also do is it'll they will render themselves and they'll create little I call them little juice pockets, little juice receptacles. And uh, they'll have these little uh, little holes in which they'll be holding a lot of moisture in them. So that's yeah. when you bite into it, you can just feel it explode. And that's that's oh. the reaction I want to have. Okay, that sounds awesome. And I loved what you said there. It's difficult to overcook it because that's always my mistake. Is if I if I overcook it, it comes out a little dry, you know, you, you want it oh. juicy. Well, what you also want to do is give yourself time to have a beer. You don't want to stress out about your cooking. You just want to look like uh, cool, cool Joe there and just, you know, flipping yeah. patties, be able to just let it go, right? It takes a little bit of the stress out for sure. That's what I love about it. How about the other thing? I've also seen you make a tip that you don't want to squish down that that patty too, too compactly or too tightly, right? Do you want that meat a little bit sort of loose? Yes. And you don't want to overhandle it too when you're making it. And the reason is, is you ground the meat and that's tenderizing the meat. And it goes back to my little joke, but it's the truth. Those little juice receptacles, those little, little openings between all the chunks of meat inside that are going to retain all those juices. If you squish it down too hard, you're going to make it into a steak again. You're not going to have any place for that, uh, that meat to hold in that moisture inside. Uh, It's going to end up tasting a little more dry. The other problem is too, is if you push down too hard on the grates when it's raw, I see a lot Mm. of people want to do that. Really good on a smash burger, not very good on a barbecue burger. If you ever watch me uh, in some of my videos at the World Championships that I go to, I almost even handle the patties and burn my fingers on purpose just so I don't get a spatch on it. You want to lay that patty on the grill like a baby, just putting him to bed <laughs> without waking him up. You want it just to lay there. You don't want it, don't want it to have it go into between the grates. That's what happens when you take your spatula and you lift stuff up and you start wrecking the patty. You want those perfect grill marks. You want that perfect ceiling going on. You want that thing to be crusty on each side. All right, getting you set for your weekend coming up here at the Langley Rib Fest. I got Rusty Johnson on the line, barbecue champion. He will be down there in Langley this weekend. Thousands of people coming out for Rib Fest. And if you're just doing some grilling at home, why not? We got a beautiful weekend coming up here. Let's go to a few of your calls here. Jim in Vancouver. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Thanks, Mike. Great show. I got a couple of questions for Rusty. The uh, on the burgers. I find sometimes if you, if you push the middle down with your thumb a little bit before you put them on, if they're a little thicker, uh, I use that uh, tip. And also, uh, do you put them in the fridge before you put them on the queue just to kind of let them firm up a bit? And what is the optimum temperature with the instant read thermometer to take them off the barbecue at? Well, let me okay, start good by saying how smart you are having an instant read thermometer. That's, uh, that's the key to all of this. And I'll tell you right now, there is no professional barbecuer at any world level that I've seen that does it by feel. I that's a that's an old wives' tale. Every single one of them, if you're on a TV show, watch them. They've got a thermopin in their hand and they're like, oh, this is medium rare. And then they pull up the instant read thermometer and they poke in the steak and they and they start to actually I know I jumped over you there, Mike. I got excited to answer. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's okay. There's the, some great questions there. Go, yeah, continue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that instant read thermometer uh, is is the key to everything, and every professional barbecuer uses it all the time because it's it is it's the way to go. Thermopen, it's the number one tip I tell people to get is get yourself a good thermometer. You're saving yourself the money in uh, in and uh, not having to get rid of dry steaks. Um, the dimple in the middle is a good idea when it comes to burgers. Um, I do it myself. I do a slight one. I don't do it too big. Um, the, you know, but the number one reason that I've found over the years though that people have those just formed like soccer ball. I mean, I was talking about baseball style uh, burgers when they start to shrink is because they're cooking it at too high of a temperature. Uh, it's more important to have that uh, structural integrity to the burger and to have something that's not gonna fall apart. So a little dimple, nothing too big, but control that temperature where you're not getting past a medium, medium hot. You don't need it to be scorching. Don't sacrifice mm. the uh, don't sacrifice the uh, internal, um, the, the juiciness of the burger for a nice crust. It's better to have the nice juiciness to it, and that's kind of the trade-off. So dimple works. Best thing to cannot warp your burgers, temperature control. Get it around medium and let it cook slowly. Okay. Roast. Great tips. Oh, yeah. And he, he also asked about should you have the burgers in the fridge before before you put them on the grill? 
that's another amazing idea and great tip for you from you there, Jim. Too, uh, I do let them firm up in the fridge. It, it and helps mm. them. I don't in terms of emulsify back together and actually bond, but you will get a better. And let's go back to the term structural integrity to the hamburger patty. You will have less all the partage uh, when you when you do let it sit in the fridge. You don't have to go in there for hours. Don't pre-season too much either. Like don't get too much salty rub on there any more than thirty minutes, but. Put them in the fridge for about 30 to 45 minutes for cooking. You'll have a much better, firmer patty by the end of it. Thanks, wow. Jim. Those are great questions. Very, very interesting. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Raf calling from Bowen Island. Hi, Raf. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Hi, Rusty. I just wanted to share my own recipe that's been passed down for at least a generation for making patties. Okay. Um, so I start with just regular ground beef. Um, I add some quick oats to the mixture, which I find helps. Um, they absorb, absorb moisture, and they also add moisture to the beef. So it breaks it up so it's a little looser and not so hard when you have the patty. Mm. Um, I also add some ketchup to it for flavor, some salt and pepper. I add a whole egg, again, to help with bonding of the patty and, and have it stick together, and also uh, some ground pork to it for flavor. Oh, okay. Rusty. Oh, yeah, just some feedback there. Definitely when it comes to oats, like I, I would do something similar myself. Um, now, you don't want to add... Now, this is a big thing for anybody that wants to add any type of uh, uh, like a panko or a breadcrumb or a, a ground cracker or an oat to a burger. Great idea. If you add too much, though, you got to uh, have just a little because what it goes, it goes back to that juice receptacles. You want to have something that's going to sit there and absorb the moisture and let it retain in the patty itself. So it's really just a holding uh, a holding device for having that juice stay in the burger. And it is a great thing I do. I add a little bit of panko, not a ton because you don't want it also yeah. to become meatloaf at the same time. And that's something that I would definitely do. Um, the only thing I always caution people, salt and pepper, great. You don't need a lot of seasonings on a burger. You just need to be balanced. But uh, I always try to make sure we don't add too much salt to the inside of the patty. Otherwise, if you let it sit too long with the salt on the inside, you end up getting the you end up getting that uh, steak flavor again, where it binds a little too much and emulsifies. So um, that's, that's the only thing I would say to that. What about an egg in there? Egg, you might find that you can use egg is good for certain things when it comes to binding. But when it uh, for the egg itself, like I don't put an egg in there. I usually just let the mayonnaise kind of do the trick and going back into the fridge for a little bit. Once you form your patties and let them sit for a little bit, they will start to kind of rebind and it should hold itself together. Um, egg is not something I personally use, but it is something you can use if you're making a burger quick. And if you're having some problems, keeping that patty uh, structural integrity good. Okay, 30 seconds left, Randy, or Rusty. Uh, uh, ketchup. He said put some, a squirt of ketchup in there. Is that a good idea? I've never actually put anything in the patty itself. I try my yeah. best to let the beef shine for itself. That's just me personally. I've never had it. I've had a little dash of, I can't say it properly, but I'm going to take a stab at it, some Worcestershire sauce on the inside. <laughs> but yeah. sometimes putting sauces in can actually, and maybe that's where the egg comes in, it can make it a little hard to bind when there's that much juiciness stuff on the inside, and you're not going to get that yeah. steak flavor, and you can almost override. You can, you can actually overflavor something too, but um, I haven't tried it yet myself. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.